This morning we're continuing in 1 John chapter 5. These are the closing remarks of the apostle as he's been teaching the church, protecting them from false theology, from bad doctrine. Knowing this, that wherever there is bad doctrine, the foundation of our walk with the Lord, the assurance of our knowledge that we belong to God is going to be under attack. Amen? I don't know what the most critical thing is for the church, but I would say this. At least right up at the top, we must always strive to get the doctrine of the Word of God correct. Amen? This has to be the singular most significant thing that we as elders and pastors, as we as parents, as we as covenant group leaders, as we are whoever we are in Christ. This is the most important thing we can do. Correct? And so people want to know, why is that man always in my face to be in school of the word? For the same reason why those of you who had children growing up and going to school were in their face to do their homework. Amen? You were constantly, did you do your homework? Make sure you get to school on time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because you understood the significance. And the significance of school, it is significant, but it's only significant for the next 50 or 60 whatever years a person lives. After that, eternity. So we're dealing with eternal things. So you remember last week we talked about our victory over the world is the result of our faith faith that Jesus is the Son of God. We talked about that. Remember we talked about the position of our faith in Christ, in the faith, sorry, in the victory that he achieved especially as seen in his death and resurrection. When he called out in a loud voice in John 1930, what are those three words? It is finished. Jesus was telling all of the world. He was telling his disciples. He was telling the angels. And especially, he was yelling into the face of every demonic being. I have won the victory. I am the victory. Amen? So we saw that. So as we have faith in him... We have been given by the Holy Spirit who has placed us into Christ when he birthed us into the kingdom, which we receive by faith. He birthed us into Christ, and at that moment, he gave us the full, final, and forever victory of Jesus himself. Do you believe that? Amen? That's who we are. Therefore, as a result of that, we now are able to walk in victory. 
Positionally, we are victorious in Christ. Therefore, practically, we walk as those who are victorious in Christ. Not to gain the victory. I'm trying to get the victory, brother. We have the victory, and ours in our obedience of faith are enjoying and displaying the victory of him who sits at the right hand of the Father. Amen? This is what it's all about. So we're overcoming the world that way. Now in our verses this morning and next week, we're going to be in verses 6 to 12. We'll go through 6 to 8 this morning and then next week, 9 to 12. John is going to give us the three divine testimonies that prove that Jesus is the Son of God. John knows we have to have our faith set in not just some ethereal, you know, spiritual something out there. Our faith must be anchored in the testimony or in the reality or in a real historical proof. Historical proof. And so John is going to give three witnesses, if you would, three proofs that substantiate that Jesus is the Son of God. And we need to know what these are. This is very important because when we begin to deal with the world out there, especially when it comes to, if you would, apologetics, you know, defending the faith and explaining, etc., we need to know these things. Father, as we speak this morning, most importantly, Father, as you communicate intellectually with us that we are hearing something with our minds, Father, may we be hearing and receiving with our hearts, that this word may permeate our souls so that we are more and more every day by your spirit being conformed to him who is the victory. Father, thank you for this in Jesus' name. So this morning we're going to talk about verses 6 to 8, the three divine witnesses or the testimonies that Jesus is the Christ. In these verses, John wants to be able to give a defense of the question, well, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Now, remember, this is written to people in the first century. And they are living in a world that basically hasn't heard much of the gospel. And so when they start talking about their faith or Jesus, Pat, who's Jesus? Who is he? What's the evidence of who he is? Where's the evidence? Where's the beef? And so John knows that the very foundation and the fabric of our Christian faith rests upon them knowing that what? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember in Matthew 16, 16, what does before that, a couple of verses before that, what does Jesus ask? He asked these disciples what? They're in Caesarea Philippi. They're outside of the, uh, the country of Israel right now. They're in actually a Gentile country. And Jesus asked what? Who do people say I am? Who am I? Some say you're Elijah. Okay. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what was Peter's reply? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John. For what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He has seen flesh and blood Jesus do things. He certainly was there. 
But seeing it externally was extremely important. That is the historical evidence. But then Jesus says, but that historical evidence that you have been seeing and witnessing and walking with and hearing and watching has been made real in you. It has been revealed to you by my Father. That's why they believed. That which was external became internal. So we want to talk about the external evidence. So verses 6 to 8, John gives us the three testimonies that substantiate Jesus. So this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three, these three are in agreement. Now, do you notice what John has done? He said this, the testimony is in the water and the blood. And then he stops for a moment and he says, you know, I want to make sure you're getting what I'm saying. Notice he did not say, immediately he did, but then in the next verse, he didn't say just water and blood. What is he doing? He puts, do you know what the definite article is? What is the definite article? The. What is the indefinite article? A. So when the Bible says or any, we say the, what are we talking about? We're specifying something in particular. And so John says, and he makes a differentiation here. He specifies, this is not just water and blood. This is the water and the blood. Now, why is he doing this that way? Why is he trying to emphasize? Sorry, why is he? You see, that slipped in. He isn't trying to emphasize. Can you give me an amen? I had to say this. Thank you, Lord. God never tries. It is we who are trying. So he uses the definite article to show two separate events that testify to Jesus. Why? Because you remember in, in uh, when Jesus dies on the cross in John 19, and what happens? The centurion shoves a spear into the Jesus' side. And what happened? Flowed from his side were what? Blood and water. Blood and water are the combination. This is one thing, if you would. It's like coffee. Coffee and cream. It's one mixture made of two elements. So blood and water flow from the side of Jesus. And John is saying here, blood and water is not what I'm talking about by the proof. I'm talking about a specific activity designated by the water. And I'm talking about a specific activity or event that is designated by the blood. So he's differentiating the two. Now, it's interesting how when you read some of the commentators or comments about these, it's kind of, well, I think it's pretty clear. He said, I'm not just talking about water and blood. I'm talking about the water. I'm talking about the blood. So John ends verse 6. Remember this. It is the spirit who testifies because it is the spirit of truth. So interesting. We have two historical events, but neither one of these events is in and of itself proof of anything by itself. 
these two events are proof or testifying of Jesus' divinity only because it is the testimony of the Spirit using or in these two events that proclaim Jesus' divinity. So we're not, we're talking about two historical events, but we're also talking about the person of the Spirit who has to enliven or demonstrate from God that these are the two events that declare that Jesus is my son. The primary purpose of the Holy Spirit, we've seen this, is to declare Jesus as the son of God. Do you have in your notes John 15, 26? What does it say? Jesus is speaking, and then he says at the end of the verse, the Spirit, he will what? Testify of me. This is the comprehensive purpose of the Holy Spirit. This is the comprehensive purpose of the Holy Spirit. Anything and everything about the Spirit has one object, one purpose, and that is to point to Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah sent from God. Everything else that the Spirit does has to do with the accomplishment or the presentation or the testimony about Jesus himself. So we can talk about... The, the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. We can talk about the gifts of the spirit. We can talk about all of that, the power of the spirit, all that's relevant, but all of those have one purpose. And that is to identify and manifest that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So how does the spirit testify to Jesus identity in the blood? I'm sorry, in the water. How does that happen? Well, you remember in Luke three, 21 and 23, let me read this to you. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. You see, the testimony is that the Holy Spirit himself sent from God, descended upon Jesus in bodily form, in the form of a dove. And a voice came out of heaven as a result and says, you are my son and you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit is the one who pointed to this man who has just been baptized by John the Baptist. This is God's son. And when Jesus, remember, came up out of the water, the dove descended upon him. And as a result of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, then the voice comes from heaven by God the Father himself, and says, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the, not the first testimony of the Spirit, but it is the historical testimony of the Spirit made clear that Jesus is the Son of God. This is not the first historical testimony. We won't get into all that this morning. I'll, I'll just... Basically, the first historical testimony, I think, in a time frame upon the earth, at least beginning with the New Testament, because you can go back in the Old Testament and follow it through, is the announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, to John the Baptist. When was that? His son will be the voice of him who cries in the wilderness, make ready for the Messiah. And then the next testimony of the spirit that Jesus is the Messiah is in the conception of Mary. Remember the one who will come upon you is 
the Holy Spirit. The one who is in you is from God. He's the Holy One of God. So those are testimonies. And throughout Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit is continually testifying that Jesus is the Christ. But the first clear testimony that John wants to give by the Holy Spirit's leading is that time, the water. Why? Because in that baptism, Jesus is announcing to the world how the gospel is to be ministered, how he was here to proclaim the gospel. And what is the essence of that? In undergoing water baptism and coming out, he was declaring, I am the anointed one of God who has been sent into the world to save sinners. Remember in Luke 14, 414, 418, I have been anointed. Remember, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news. So in the baptism, what Jesus is visibly showing is this. I'm going to save God's people. How? By going into the waters of death. By going into death. And then by coming back out. He's proclaiming how he's going to do that. That's an announcement of the essence, if you would, of his ministry. Atoning for the sin of man. See, we have to be careful as believers because a lot of churches are doing this. The essence and the actual, the, the primary purpose of Jesus is not to make us better. It's not to bring justice into this culture today. It's not about rac uh, racial reconciliation. This is not the primary purpose. Those things may happen as a result of the church displaying the gospel, correct? And they should happen. But what is the purpose of Jesus? To die as a payment for our sin so that we are forgiven by God the Father in order that he will send the Holy Spirit to bring us into his family. Amen? That's the purpose of Jesus. All the other or ancillary or secondary purposes or benefits that the church and we hopefully will experience to some way, to some extent. So even John, remember John the Baptist says at the baptism, he says this in John 1, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. How does he know it? Because the Lord had said to him previously, on him, on whom, him on whom the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will descend. That's the Son. That's the Lamb of God, do you remember? So the water is the first historical testimony. That what? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? That is God's incarnate Son. Come to earth as the Messiah, the promised Messiah, to atone for the sin of God's people for the purpose of God's eternal purpose in creation, that we and he may be joined relationally in a fellowship forever. Second Peter 1, 4 tells us that. And again, you might want to read that. The second event is the blood, the blood. What is this a reference to? What do you think? The death of Jesus, right? Now, 
at the death of Jesus, is the Holy Spirit visible as he was at the baptism of Jesus? Remember, at the baptism, the Holy Spirit is visibly displayed as the dove. And we have the audible voice. Is the Holy Spirit, not other activity, is the Holy Spirit himself made manifest at the death of Jesus? Is he there? Manifested visibly. No, he isn't. In other words, had you been at the baptism of John the Baptist, of Jesus, at, you know, by John the Baptist, you would have seen something. Diane, you would have said, man, look at that. That bird is just settling on that man who got baptized. Are you with me? Some bird sat on his shoulder. Now, Ben, that's all you're going to know unless the Holy Spirit reveals himself to you. Man, I was out there today, and it was weird. John the Baptist was doing this, and he talked about the Lamb of God, you know, and, oh, okay, fine, whatever that is. And all of a sudden, he baptized this man called Jesus, and Jesus comes out of water. Some bird got on him. <laughs> Remember, the dove was a symbol of what? What, what? Peace. Why peace? Because, you see, as a result of the payment of Jesus on the cross, we have now been brought into a peaceful relationship with God. The war is over. What war? God's war against us because of our sin. That war is over. In Christ, we have been forgiven. So what does Romans 5.1 say? Therefore, having been justified, having received this verdict of forgiveness... Having received it, we have what? Peace with God through, through who? Jesus Christ. Well, I should have said through whom. Somebody should have caught that. So, when does the Spirit testify to the identity in Jesus? First of all, listen to this from Hebrews 9.14. The Spirit testifies through the blood. When the Spirit offered Jesus himself without blemish to God. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us by the Spirit. Jesus went to the cross being led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the culmination of everything and every way that Jesus has lived from his, the beginning. He is empowered by the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. And all that he does, all that he says, everything about this man is under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. In fact, apart from the leading and the revelation and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can do nothing. You remember that verse? I can do nothing of my own accord. Where's that? John 5, 30. Do you remember that? But only as I hear my Father. So what does Jesus mean? I can do nothing of my own accord. Here is a man on earth who says, I can't do anything that proclaims the reality 
of God. I can't do anything that proclaims the glory of God. I can't do anything as to my Father's will. I can't do what? Anything on my own. What does he mean? My own meaning apart from the Holy Spirit. And so when Hebrews 9 says, Jesus is led, you know, by the Spirit. He is offers himself by the Spirit. He is doing, he is saying that what Jesus has, how Jesus has been living all these years is now culminated in the cross. But how is the blood substantiated as a testimony of the Spirit? How is it? What substantiates the blood as being an historical event that testified that Jesus is the Christ? And that testimony given by the Holy Spirit. What is it? By itself. By itself. If you are at the cross. And you are watching this man die. How do you know? He's the son of God. You're just watching a man die. If at the cross you hear this man say, Father, forgive them. Wow. If at the cross you hear other words of Jesus, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first line of Psalm 22. Do you know when that man dies? And yes, Cody, you're right, earthquakes and all that. But that's just coincidence, man. The man dies and all a bunch of worth carry. We can't connect that at all. How do we know that the death of that man, that God was in that man reconciling himself to the world? How do we know? You see, if we don't get this right, we have no proof that Jesus is the Son of God. The first proof is the water, but the first proof is dependent upon this proof. This is the quintessential proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And come on, believers, we have to get it right. No matter what they say, no matter how they say it, no matter what the argument is, it comes down. Say it again, I can't hear you. The resurrection. How do you know, Pat, that the blood of Jesus... On the cross was the blood of God the Son. You don't unless you know about the resurrection. It is in the res rising of Jesus from the dead that the Spirit proves or testimony, testifies that the blood of that man is the blood of the everlasting covenant. That the blood of that man is the summation is the gathering up of every sacrifice beginning when? Ah, be careful. Of every sacrifice beginning when? When did the sacrifices begin? In what chapter of Genesis? Ver ver what verse? 21. Well, I, I don't see any blood. No blood was mentioned there. Donnie, do you ever do in hunting? You have a hunt, Donnie? I can't hear you, brother. Come on, you have a big mouth. Yell it out. Okay. What do you do? <clears throat> what do you do? 
What do you do with these deer? What do you do with these deer? Yeah. But what is part of the cleaning meaning? Skin them. Right? You have to skin them. When you skin an animal, a deer, let's say, is any blood shed? There's a whole lot of blood being shed. And so when Adam and Eve sin, you remember, and they're hiding behind the cabbages. See, that's Ray. That's why I don't eat cabbages. And the broccoli and the asparagus. They were behind all that. Carmen, don't eat the stuff. <laughs> when Adam and Eve sin, they were hiding. And what does God do? Notice what he doesn't do. And this is extremely instructive for us as to how we understand our faith. When Adam sins in Genesis 3, 6, I don't want to get away from the camera because they told me not to walk too far. In Genesis 3, 6. Well, I do that because Brenda Tullis is probably sleeping right now, you know. In Genesis 3, 6, Adam sins. Remember that? Now, the first thing that happens is what? Is it Adam calling upon the name of the Lord? Does Adam say, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me and make me your child. Is that what he says? He blames the woman. But is the first response of humanity to call upon Jesus to want to be saved? It's fear. I know what people say. People all around the world are looking for God. No, they're not. People all around the world are hiding from God. Don't you believe this foolishness? Believe what the word of God says. So how are Adam and Eve forgiven? How are they? The first words, I think in verse 8, is this. Adam. Where are you? <gasps> well, Charles, Adam, God doesn't know they're behind the cabbages. How many of you, when your children do something, you ask them, what did you do? You ever ask Henry that? Or Walter? Okay, what did you do? How many, how many, how many, how many, how many, how many? What are you doing? You don't know what they did? No, you know what they did. You're eliciting from them a confession and hopefully a repentance. Isn't that right? So what did you do? God is eliciting from them a revelation, an understanding of what he's done. Then, God doesn't say, you need to repent. Ellen, he doesn't say that. Ben, he doesn't say that. Shane, he doesn't say that. God clothes them with an animal skin. What does it mean, Karen? The shedding of the blood. As a result of that, Adam and Eve are able then to walk in the good of the blood that was shed. Do you see it? We have to be careful. Our understanding of God's way of ministering, saving, working with us as his people.
Did I just say repentance is not important? No, repentance is important. First of all, we are able to repent of our sin when we are birthed into the kingdom of God. But after that, as kingdom members, repentance is, forgiveness is not required. Sorry, forgiveness does not depend upon uh, repentance. Repentance allows us to continue to walk in the good of the uh, forgiveness. Amen? We don't repent to be forgiven as believers. We are forgiven, therefore we repent. Do we get it straight? Do we understand that? Okay. 1 Peter 3.8. Jesus was put, together in, put to death in the body, but made alive, the member of the blood, but made alive in the spirit. Made alive in the spirit. You see the testimony of this, the death of Jesus, beginning where? Clearly beginning where? In Genesis 3, verse 21. But the historical evidence of it, that it has been accomplished, is at the cross. And God, the Son, was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Correct? Let me read you the verse here. It says this. The Holy Spirit raised... Wait, let me find... Where, where is my, my uh, uh, reference here? I think I already had it. Yes, I already read it to you. already read it. How does the Spirit... The Spirit... I'm sorry, I got thrown off here. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit testifies that the blood substantiates Jesus' divinity. But also notice this. The Trinity was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Do you have these verses there? The Father raised Jesus. Romans 6, 4. Is that in the notes? Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too may live in new life. Jesus rose by his own power. No one takes it from me. He talked about, you know, his life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So which is it? Well, who raised Jesus from the dead? Did the Spirit raise him from the dead? Yes. Did God the Father raise Jesus from the dead? Yes. Did Jesus raise himself from the dead? The Son of God, as to his humanity, was given authority to be raised by himself. Isn't that interesting? So what does that say? The Trinity of God is actively involved in the resurrection. But not only of that, is there any activity at all, ever, in which the Trinity is not involved? Is there any activity, whatever, in which the Trinity is not involved? When's the beginning of the involvement of the Trinity? In my mind, the greatest verse in the entire Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, remember, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was what? Void and formless. 
And what happened? Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And what happened? The Spirit of God did what? Hovered or vibrated over the waters. And then in verse 3, let there be light. God the Father initiates it by his authority. The Holy Spirit empowers that authority to be applicable to the creation. And the Son speaks it into reality. The Trinity is the person of God himself, the being of God himself, from the very beginning until the very end. Amen? So let's make sure that we know this. What's the distinguishing factor or truth about Christianity over every other religion? What's the difference between Christianity and and, uh, Muslim, Islam? What's the, what's the distinguishing factor? You know how people say, well, they're the same. How many of you heard that? Christians now beginning to Christianity is a monotheistic Trinitarian religion. Monotheism, one being in three persons. Where Islam is a monotheistic unitheism. In other words, one God, no other persons. That kind of a God cannot save. Why? That God, if he is alone in himself, cannot give his own life. Only a God who is in three persons can one of those persons of God give his life for his people. Amen? So, Trinity. So, let's continue next week and we'll finish, what is it I said, verses 9 to 12. Amen? Thank you for being here.